I've set a goal today and I shall seek to achieve it. We are going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which clearly are the conditions of the New Covenant marriage between Christ and his church, or his bride, the 144,000, the church comprising most of that over the ages. <clears throat> Some from the old and quite a few here from the end time are going to be chosen to be a part of that. Really, they had a few from the Old Testament, uh, many of whom are mentioned in Hebrews 11, and then there was a renaissance of spiritual Israel at the time Christ and the apostles preached, and it very quickly died out. After about 70 years, the church was essentially gone. By 100 A.D., 70 years after Christ was here roughly, uh, there had been a great falling away. Uh, I'm sure many, many qualified to be part of the Bride of Christ. It had disappeared. And consistent, here in the end time, uh, the New Testament church, well, well, let me back up just a moment, through the Middle Ages and so on, we can trace a few Sabbath and Holy Day keepers here and there through those that period of time from 100 A.D. down until uh, the Puritans came across to this country. It does not appear that there is a great number. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is there was a big number in the Apostles' ministry, and there is a fairly large number here at the end. So the primary areas of man's history from Adam till today of the harvest of the 144,000 are the early New Testament church and the end time church. So there are lots of slots being filled and have been being filled since 1933 to date. But very much... The Bible is written in patterns, and prophecy goes in patterns, and God has worked it out that way, so that the early New Testament church lasted about 70 years and then virtually disappeared. And so, from 1933, when Worldwide was organized as the Radio Church of God, until uh, about 2003, roughly 70 years, the church has also virtually disappeared. Uh, worldwide church is actually completely gone, uh, has now an evangelical uh, name and is mainstream Protestantism. <clears throat> you do have quite a few who are clinging, but they are fading and splintering further, and the plight gets worse. So essentially, this era of the church lasted about 70 years, and that's it. These are rough numbers, but very close. So we are part of those who now have opportunity still to qualify to be a part of the Bride of Christ and that 144,000. <clears> so let's continue in chapter 6 of Matthew with the conditions that Christ laid down for his apostles and the church that they would oversee and which still exists today, the gates of the grave never having prevailed completely over it, but there has been a a resurge here at the end when God has called many and is finishing his choosing from them. I want you and I, or you and me, I should say, no, it's I, uh, to 
have the best opportunity to be a part of that that we possibly can. So it's good that we go over this, especially in light of the fact that the plan of God, as it is annually, <clears throat> is coming to an end here with these fall festivals, and we need to understand where we fit in there and what impact it has upon us. So let's finish today this conditional area of the Bible, the bridal ceremony, if you will, and then we'll get more into the meaning of trumpets, atonement, feasts of tabernacles, and so on uh, in the ensuing sermons in the feast, if you're not sick and I live. So chapter 6, <clears throat> take heed that you do not your alms before men. This is another section here in the outline of what he requires of us, that the things that he mentioned we are to do above this and some things afterward need to be handled in a certain way. We're not here to put on a show. We're not to do the things that we do to try to impress men. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. So the attitudes he told us to have at the beginning of chapter 5, the humility, the meekness, the spiritual poverty that we adjudge ourselves of, is to carry through. And one way that that is to be shown is by the way we act and react among ourselves and among people out in the world around us. We are to do good. We are to do as our Father in heaven. We are to follow the laws as we outlined at the end of chapter 5. But everything we do is to be for the purpose of coming to have holy, righteous garments so that Christ would select us as his bride. He was a very humble man when he was on this earth. He did nothing for outward show. So we're not here to try to impress one another or the world. We're here to do our job to impress our Father and his Son in heaven with our character, our overcoming, our growth, how we live. But we're not here to brag or to try to impress others, but to be meek and to humble and quietly go about those things that he would have us do. Now, notice clearly that this is not a suggestion that we will have no reward of our Father which is in heaven if we do the things we do to try to impress other human beings. Now, he'll make that a little clearer as we go down. But no reward is pretty all-inclusive, is it not? Not a little bit of reward. For doing things temporarily and out of pride, out of vanity, out of ego, out of self-righteousness, it removes the reward. You might have done a good thing. Truly, it was a good thing to do. But if we take pride and ego in it, it destroys the spirituality of it. It destroys the benefit. And God says he will simply not reward that. Therefore, when you do your alms, your good deeds, the things to help others, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. That is, blowing their mouth or their trumpet or however they choose to show how good they're being, that is their only reward, is the approbation of men the goodwill that they might get from people, 
But he says, you destroy your reward from heaven, from God. Remember how Peter put it in James? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so often, human beings do things out of pride, out of being able to pat themselves on the back, which is a self-righteous gesture, or to impress others, which can also be self-righteous and full of pride, vanity, and ego. But when you do your alms, let not your left hand know what your right hand does. You are, as we heard in the sermonette, ready to give, to serve, to help, of a ready mind at any and all times, any time there is a need. We do not consider how we feel. We do not consider what program it is we might have wanted to watch or how much more we could have eaten before we had to go do. But if there is a need, we're ready, of a ready mind. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take time to eat and sleep and, and relax and, and so on. But what it does mean is <clears throat> be busy helping and not keeping score. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand does. And if they don't know, if they're both serving and giving and helping, and you're not keeping score up here, then they don't know, do they? The score isn't kept by the hands anyway. It's really kept up here. But he's making a point. We're here to give and to serve, and we're not to try to get glory or praise or approbation of mankind. Now, if it comes, that's fine, and I do appreciate the effort that went into putting in the pavilion and the many other acts that were done to get ready for the feast, among other things. Uh, the weather is not cooperating to let us use it, but I appreciate the fact that it was done anyway. Now, you didn't ask for that, and maybe you're not proud of what you did, but on the other hand, thanks where it is deserved. So those things are appreciated, but we need to be careful in how we approach what we do. A lot of our good deeds should essentially be anonymous. If they're anonymous, then it's hard to brag about them. You do things for people wherever you can, and they don't even know about it. I know that there is quite a bit of that that goes on around here. <clears throat> People do things, they leave it on your back porch or your front porch, or they drop it in your box or whatever they do, and you don't have a clear idea even where it came from. Now, that's often the way things should be. But we do kind of like to impress people with the things we do, don't we? Sometimes we take pride in them. There is no room for pride, period. Even God himself, if anybody had pride or had reason to be proud, it would be God the Father. But he didn't even say, I'm proud of you, my son. He said, I'm well pleased with what you've done. And that is probably as open as he will get, because God does not have pride. He, he as I say, if anyone deserved it, it would be him, but he doesn't have that attitude. We don't have much to be proud of, and yet we're very proud anyway. There's something haywire there. But pride is, and vanity, ego, and self-centeredness is 
one of the biggest things that we fight. Verse 4, that your alms be, may be in secret, your, that your father, which sees in secret, himself shall reward you openly. So expect your reward, expect your thanks to come from him if you do things quietly and for the right reason. And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Truly I say you, to you, they have their reward. The men think they act spiritual is the only reward they're going to get. So God is telling us here that the things we do for others and the relationship we have with God is to be essentially a private thing. Now, certainly when you do things, people are going to see uh, when we're, you know, we're building something or putting in a water line or whatever, people are going to see that you help. Uh, just don't take a pride in it or be bragging about how much you do or even patting your own self on your back in your mind and say, well, I'm the one that works hard, and so-and-so and so-and-so doesn't work hard, therefore I must be doing better than they are. Because whether you brag to other people, or whether you brag to yourself, the net result is pride for which there is no reward. Self-satisfaction, or satisfaction, I'm trying to say, is not the answer either. Self-satisfied, self-righteous are the same. But we as human beings tend to keep score. It is very human to do that. Well, I did this, and I did this, and I did that, and you didn't do anything, or you didn't do much, or where were you? When I was serving. And whether that is something that is said openly to another human being, or whether it's something that goes on only within the confines of your own brain, it's still not the right attitude. If you don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, that means no scorekeeping, period. Now, we like to keep score, don't we, for both negative and positive. <clears throat> we like to keep score of all the mistakes, the weaknesses, the faults, the sins that we see in others, and then in a moment of anger or frustration, we like to recount them to them or in our own mind and have a sour, bitter, poisonous attitude within ourselves. Who does that hurt, them or you? If you're the one that's got the poison in your head, you're the one being poisoned. Then if you share it with somebody else, you're poisoning them along with yourself. And then we also like to keep score of the good things that we do. We easily forget the good things other people do, don't we? But we tend to remember the good things we did, the bad things they did. In other words, we're all in this together. We're here to help one another any way we can and not to take credit to ourselves, either verbally or internally. So we're not like the hypocrites. And we can even do it with our prayer or our Bible study. We might do those things, but if you go out and say, well, I just finished praying, or I just finished my Bible study before I came out, 
That's the same thing almost as doing it in the street, isn't it? You're letting somebody know, well, I'm doing my prayer, I'm doing my Bible study. And in a way, it's a form of bragging. It's a form of pride. And you know what that does? That removes the value of the prayer and study because it was done in self-righteousness and then paraded out before someone else. Now, we should all pray. We should all study. But he says, go do it in private. And I think that that also implies, keep it private. Now, it's good, I think. Iron can sharpen iron. We, it's nice if we know that we're studying. But, you know, you can tell whether somebody's studying a lot of times by their reactions and praying, by saying, does anybody have a question? Nobody has a question. It makes you wonder if they're studying. Because when you study, it brings up questions, doesn't it? Of course, I know when you're studying, the question comes, and then 30 minutes later you forget what your question was. It's not all that we're not studying. I don't mean to accuse or let's not get that wrong in that sense, but we're not here to let everybody know how righteous we are based on letting them know that, well, you know, I didn't show up because I had to pray and study first. No, just do it and then show up. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet. And when you have shut your door, you don't leave it open, but you shut it. You do this in private. Pray to your Father, which is in secret. And your Father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. So he wants us to keep our religion, in that sense, to ourselves. It's a relationship between him and us. And essentially, I think you could include study with the prayer in terms of our pride or our self-righteousness in what we do. You know, I saw, just comes to mind, I saw a man in the church I used to admire a great deal. Uh, he did his prayer his Bible study, if he was up till 12, 1, 2 o'clock at night, he would be up at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, have his head in his Bible. If you're around his house or stayed over at his place, he was up studying. I don't care what happened. He was up studying that Bible. And I saw him do that for probably 8, 10 years because he was in one congregation, moved to another that I went to. And when Worldwide went astray, he didn't miss a beat. It makes me wonder, what was he learning? What was he studying? He wasn't getting something, but he sure did study and pray. Well, it needs to be effective. It needs to accomplish something, not just read it for the sake of reading it. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. When we say vain repetitions, I think that it has been, over the years, kind of put in the terms of uh, the Catholics doing Hail Marys. You know, Hail Mary, Mother of God, blah, blah, blah. You do your 
laps around the rosary, and that's supposed to make you righteous. I don't think that we can put all this in that pigeonhole. We can repeat things in a vain way by the amount of times we take them to God. Notice part of this says, they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not you therefore like them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. So you don't take the exact same thing day after day, day after day, to God asking for the same thing over and over and over again. It at some point loses its strength, it loses its effect with him and with you, and it becomes just so much verbiage, so much repetition. He knows what we have need of before we even ask. That doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. But there is a limit to how much we ask for the same thing over and over again, and it becomes vain. If your child comes to you and they want such and such, and you say no, and they keep asking over and over again, and you keep saying no, and they keep asking, and pretty soon you get irritated because of their continual asking, because it doesn't just... It isn't just asking, then it becomes whining. And it just gets worse and worse if you allow it to continue. Of course, they may have learned that if they'll keep saying it over and over and over again, that at a certain point you'll give in just to shut them up. That's another problem. On the other hand, we have to consider the other side of this. Uh, What was the scripture that was coming to mind here? Oh, the woman and the unjust judge. She went before the unjust judge, and she kept asking until he finally said, Okay, lady. So there is a certain side of it. God does tell us there in Isaiah not to uh, give him any rest until these things and the prophecies that we keep talking about begin to happen and are accomplished. So there's somewhere in there there is a balance between sincere going before God and asking or just repeating something over and over that has no meaning because you don't have faith. If we have faith and we're asking God to do something in faith, believing he hears us, recognizing his power and his concern for us, then it has meaning. But if we just keep going and asking for the same thing over and over again, and we don't really believe it's going to happen, then it just becomes noise. See what I mean? I've seen people use anointing like Band-Aids. You know, you get a little water under a Band-Aid, and first thing you know, it, it comes off, you've got to go get a new one. Then you've got to go get a new one. It doesn't stick. When you are anointed for something, you are formally putting it in God's hands. And you can continue to pray about it, but to get anointed over and over and over and over again for the same malady becomes, at some point, vain repetition. 
I'm not here to try to define exactly when that is, but years ago, I remember some, some of the little old ladies in a, in a congregation, it's been in all of them, I guess, but I was thinking of one in particular, an area where there were quite a few of them. They needed anointed every week. Yeah, they were old, and yeah, they had problems, but they essentially wanted anointed for the same thing every week. Now, they were not really wanting to be anointed, to be healed. They wanted attention. They needed attention. So the reason they were coming every week was that was a reason or an excuse to come and get some attention. Now, it's not wrong to want attention. I'm not knocking that. We all need a certain amount of attention. But to use the anointing to do that was a, a misuse in that sense, if you will. I know God says very much about the widows and the orphans and so on <clears throat> needing extra help and needing extra attention and so on because they do not have a fullness of life that they may have once enjoyed. Uh, so they do need extra help and so on. But what I'm trying to get across here is that the same things over and over and over again without any, once they lose their meaning, what's the point? So he says, instead of getting to where it's just so many words, you've prayed that way, I've prayed that way. I'm, my mind might be a hundred or a thousand miles away and I'm going over, you know, the, the words are coming through my mind, if not audible, because I often pray silently, sometimes aloud. But my mind might not even be there, but the thoughts are just going over and over through the head. You're saying the same things over and over, day by day by day. And if your mind isn't there, and your emotion and your feelings aren't there, and you're just repeating it because that's become the form that you use, what is it really accomplishing? So it's not just rosaries and Hail Marys. It's also us continuing to say things that really have become meaningless. When we implore God about a certain thing, it needs to be with the heart. It needs to be with an expectancy and a faith. Because he says if we don't have faith, we won't get answers. What did Christ say? Your faith has made you whole. If we get anointed like we'd take an aspirin and it doesn't have much more emotion or feeling toward God than that, it probably won't do much more good than an aspirin. It needs to be done with faith, true belief, trust that God will do what he has promised if we will do our part. He is always willing to do his part. It is we who fall short. So that being said, he says in verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray you. Okay, here's the way he recommends we go about it. Our Father. Notice that? It doesn't say, my Father, who is in heaven. It says, our Father. Now, our prayers can be very personal and they can reflect the needs and the traumas of our souls. And yet, on the other hand, he doesn't tell us, pray, my Father who is in heaven. Yes, it is a personal relationship. But he wants us to get 
the idea that we are in this together. We are his children. We are brothers and sisters together in his church. We are our, or plural, in terms of becoming the bride of Christ. Salvation is individual. You're not going to get raised up in the resurrection just because you know so-and-so, or you play golf with the preacher. So it is highly personal in that sense, and each one will be judged by his own actions, as Ezekiel 33 and other places talk about. Not the Father for the Son or the Son for the Father. It is personal in that sense. However, he wants us to understand we are one body, and if one hurts, the other hurts. If one be blessed, we should all be blessed. If one has a problem, then we all should have that problem together. We should grow and overcome not only as fingers or toes, but as a body. And that is why he says, our Father. Let's not forget here how we started this out in Matthew 25, where Christ made it very plain that our relationship with him is not based upon our feelings toward God the Father in Christ. What he judges us on is how we treat each other. Bottom line, if you didn't do it for him, him, her, and her, then I will not do it for you. And when you think you had this great relationship with me and you weren't doing these things to your brothers and sisters and taking care of them, naked, blind, hungry, you know, the things he said, says that is how I will judge you is by your relationship with one another. That is how he defines your relationship with him. Because we can deceive ourselves so easily that we have one relationship with God and one relationship with these people here. And he says you cannot separate it. How you treat them is exactly how I will judge that you treated me. And if you didn't treat them like you think you want to treat me, then I will say, I do not know you. And he isn't going to marry anybody he doesn't know. So let's get that out of this. Our Father. And notice that this remains plural all the way through this sample prayer. Now, this is a very quick prayer if you just repeat it, as many people do. But he's giving categories here of the things and how we should pray. And you'll notice that it is not selfish. It is inclusive of all of us. Our Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The, the impact is not immediately... My God in heaven, bless me. My God in heaven, remove the curse from me. My God in heaven, give me a job. It's just not there. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it is a good idea at the beginning of a prayer to mention various things about his glory, his honor, uh, his majesty, his titles, his functions, because it helps keep... It gives glory to him and it helps us keep in mind the benefits that accrue as a result of our relationship with him. He has many titles, many names. 
There's been studies on there, you know, God our healer and God our provider and God the sustainer and creator and all these different titles he has, the different hats he wears. And it is good for us to go over some of those things that are mentioned in the Bible because it helps us keep in remembrance who provides what is provided for us. And not just us as individuals, but us corporatively. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now that is not selfish either. Now I want to be in his kingdom. I want you to be in his kingdom. But it is a wide open plea. Your kingdom needs to be here on this earth because of the murder and the sickness and the death and the suffering and the poor relationships and all the things that Satan and men have done on this earth to not only pollute our relationships, but to pollute the land and the, everything that we have. Everything that he made that was very good, we've made a mess of and are making it worse day by day. Our health is suffering. Our children are suffering. The whole creation groans together for the return of Christ, Romans 1 says. So it's a good time when we start to pray to remind him that we need his kingdom and to remind ourselves that that is the goal and the purpose we're seeking is to be a part of his kingdom. See how this outline helps us so much just through the first couple of areas that he mentions. It broadens our view beyond my personal ache or pain or lack at the moment, whatever it might be. You'll get there quickly enough, won't you? If you make yourself stick to this format and embellish and widen your vision and your view by approaching God with these things, it will help you get away from localitis and self-itis and more a worldview, which is what he would have us have. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. He controls what is done in heaven, and we want him to be in control, in charge, to have his will done on this earth. Now, when his kingdom comes, it's going to be done. But in the meantime, his will is not going to be done on this earth by Satan and his demons, nor is it going to be done by very many people. Of the six and a half billion roughly on the earth today, there are only a few thousand who are truly seeking the will of God. And most, even in the church of God, who have the truth of God, are not seeking his kingdom and righteousness in the way that he desires. That is, with our whole heart. The lackadaisical, half-hearted, oh yeah, I keep the Sabbath. What do you mean you keep it? You remember it, but do you keep it holy? Do you not seek your own pleasures? Do you not think your own thoughts? Whoa, wait a minute. Acknowledging it by not going to work is one thing. But bringing thoughts and activities into control is yet another. But the healers of the breach between man and God have to get their foot off the Sabbath, as we 
talked about yesterday in Isaiah 58. How many truly are seeking with their whole heart to make sure God's will is done on this earth? Not very many. He says he will have mercy on thousands. Right there in the Ten Commandments. I will have mercy on thousands. He will come with ten thousands of his saints. Not 144,000 plus this innumerable multitude. They come later. The first resurrection is restricted to 144,000 exactly. So when he comes with ten thousands of his saints, it's not going to be millions. That's what Jude says. So there are very few alive today who are not only praying, but striving to see that his will be done on earth. Help each other, strengthen each other, and we ourselves try to accomplish his will to the very best of our ability with our whole heart. He says to the church, you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Jobs, blessings, physical things that we need. Spiritual bread as well as physical bread. We need both. But again, it's not selfish. Don't give me my bread. Who cares about you? I, I want my job. I want my stuff. I want my materialism. No. He still keeps this in a plural sense. So it does get down to our daily needs, physically and spiritually here, on down the line. But we pray for bigger issues first, see? Your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. All these bigger, wider things. And then it gets down to our daily needs. And forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. No. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Still not just me. You and me, Lord. We're going to do big things together, you and me. Now this is put in terms of, I don't expect you to forgive me my debts, whether they be physical credit card debts, or whether they be, and I think this is more the meaning, our spiritual debts, those things that we lack with others, those things we did to them that created a debt in the first place, whether it was an emotional debt or whatever kind. The only way we can ask for our sins, problems, debts to be forgiven is even as we ask that others be forgiven. I pray for forgiveness. You pray for forgiveness. And that is a good thing. We need it. But on the other hand, God very clearly says, and we'll get down here to it a little bit more in a moment when we finish this prayer, that he will not forgive 
our sins, our debts, our problems, our mistakes, unless and until we forgive all those of others. How many of your sins do you want forgiven, by the way? One, two, three, all of them? I prefer all mine were forgiven. Well then, God expects you not to forgive the sins, faults, mistakes of another person once or twice. He wants you to be willing to forgive them all. Seventy times seven is another example, not here, but it's in there. 490 times a day is far more than probably anyone is going to make the same mistake with you in the same day. So it's just wide open. Always be willing, as much as is necessary, in other words. How do we, where do we get off being so self-righteous that we think, if I pray, God forgive me for what I've done, and we're not willing to forgive and forget somebody else's problem, but he'll do that. Mommy, give me a cookie. Don't give Billy one. Mom doesn't go for that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So the attitude here is of humility, of meekness, of not keeping score, of being willing to give everyone all their problems, their sins that they may have committed, their grievances, their offenses that they may have had toward us. He says, don't even put it, forgive me mine, unless you're willing to forgive others theirs. That means you can't keep score, like he said before, right hand, left hand. Whether you're keeping track of your good deeds or their bad ones, there is no scorekeeping allowed. You forgive, and you forget, and you don't bring it up again in the midst of battle and accuse them of something that's six months or a year or two, three, or three, five years, two decades old. Let's deal with the present and the future and forget the past. It's the glory of God to cover sin. It is the glory of man to uncover it, to whisper about it, to tattle about, to talk about. And we all sin with our tongues. And when we do, he says, I will not forgive you until you forgive them. That's just the way it is. It's not just you and me, Lord. Lead us not, us, not into temptation. We're praying for each other here. But deliver us from the evil one, as it should read. Deliver us from Satan. Don't let any of us be tempted. Help us, strengthen us. I'm not just praying for myself here. I'm praying for everybody, all of us. This is the way we should pray. It's unselfish, isn't it? It's all-inclusive. If we're blessed, we want everybody else to be blessed. If they're hurting, we hurt. So whatever the need is, we include all of us, because we are a body. And one reason he makes us a body and gives us marriage on, on a human level is so that we might understand and learn wisdom and application of how we are to live with him and how we're to live with each other throughout all eternity. Would you want to live with everyone here in close proximity for all eternity the way they are? Would you want to live with you through all eternity 
the way you are? If you say yes, I think you've got a problem. <laughs> that makes us all very self-deceived. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live with me forever like I am. I wouldn't want to live with you forever like you are either. So there. There has to be a change in all of us, and we'll get to that a little later on. Because this is boot camp, and we are still very human, and the devil is still around. And we still make all kinds of mistakes and commit all kinds of offenses and have all kinds of wrong attitudes. And, you know, we just got a long way to go. And sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves and with each other, don't we? But let's give each other hope. And let's forgive each other and hope that God forgives us all. Then we're making some progress. Then we're getting where, somewhere where Christ might say, yeah, I think I do want to save that bunch. They are merciful and loving and forgiving with each other. And therefore, I know that that will carry through. If we can do it on the level that we are now, as human beings, then he will be convinced that we could do it as spirit beings forevermore. We just got to convince him. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So we start a prayer by giving him Recognition, to hallow his name, and then we give him glory, honor, and praise at the end because we're talking to a real live being who can answer prayers, has answered prayers, has answered some of ours, and hasn't answered some of ours. Sometimes we wonder, why doesn't God hear my prayers or our prayers? Well, the primary reason for that is that we don't have the trust and the faith in him to take care of our problems, and we don't follow through with how we should treat each, treat each other, and he's already told us ahead of time, I'm going to treat you just like you treat each other. So if you want to know why your prayers aren't getting answered, start analyzing how you treat each other. And I include me, we treat each other what attitudes we have toward one another. And if those attitudes aren't right, there's one real good reason we're not getting forgiveness and mercy and blessing. I mean, he clearly bases it there. Then he says, Amen, or so be it. Now, immediately after this, he says, he, he, he makes the point I've been making again right after he gives this sample prayer. Because he's saying, if you don't do it this way, and you don't ask for forgiveness as you forgive others, there's a problem, and the prayer isn't going to be of any effect. Prayer has to be in the right attitude for the right reasons to be effective with God. He says we can cry, Lord, Lord, all day long, and it won't do us any good unless we do the things that he says. It is just so much empty words, and it becomes, in that sense, vain repetition. Because it is not based on the things that God says he will answer. It's based on selfishness. And we all have made errors there. We make selfish prayers. We have our minds centered on ourselves instead of mankind as a whole, and us as a whole, as a church. 
And that is one of the primary reasons we do not receive answers from God. The trust, the faith, that he will hear and answer our prayers has to be based upon our doing the things that he says to do. And he echoes that immediately after the prayer. Verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you're one who bears grudges, who will not let it go, who harbors it, who keeps score, so he's ready to lay it on you the minute there's an infraction or anger or frustration of some kind. If you keep score, your score goes to zero. No matter how you score everybody else, yours goes to zero with God. It's that simple. If you forgive men their trespasses, he will forgive you. But... If you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He will carry them. He will keep score, if you will. The degree with which you are willing to forgive others is the degree which he is willing to forgive you. This isn't a parable. This isn't hard to understand. This is very simple, plain, straightforward language, as plain as you can get. It's simple. It's just difficult. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to fast. Oh, woe is me. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But, if, but you, when you fast, wash your hair, comb it, wash your face, brush your teeth, smile. Don't let it be known that you're fasting. That is a spiritual tool that we use to get close to God. And bragging about fasting is the same as blowing a trumpet in the street and saying a prayer for other people to see and hear. Prayer is a very private thing. So is Bible study, for that matter. And then clearly, so is fasting. Now, when we all fast together, we know we're doing it, and that's not a problem you know, it's kind of hard to brag I'm fasting and you're not when we all are. The self-righteousness comes when we think, well, I'm fasting. What's the matter with you? You're looking fat and fancy today. And I'm getting close to God with my fasting. No, it's something to be essentially kept private. Now, there might be a reason sometimes you tell somebody, you know, I'm just not quite up to that today but you don't necessarily have to say because I'm getting really spiritual. You might not say that openly, but you might think it in your mind. And what goes on in the mind is what's truly important. Because what we're thinking is ultimately how we'll be acting. So, verse 18, that you appear not to men to fast, but unto your Father which is in secret. 
And your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. So this part of our relationship, that which is to, are the spiritual tools to build our attitude, are to be essentially quiet. Even our good deeds are to be done quietly. But we pray openly to God for each other and forgive one another. Okay, next area that he discusses in terms of the bride and her conduct. In verse 19, this is part of the marriage ceremony there again, the covenant, the agreement we make with God. This is his instruction to us to be a proper bride for Christ. Okay, let's keep that theme throughout this. It's more personal that way, and it has to do very critically with the goal that we have here in mind. Lay not up for your treasures upon earth, where moth and rust does corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Our materialistic society in America today is a wrong direction. Americans just want to be rich. They want all the material goodies and play toys and things and electronics and anything you name, fancy clothes, different kind of shoes, this kind of car, whatever, and we judge it by the Joneses uh, as our neighbors are across the street or whatever, trying to keep up appearances, trying to have the best for ourselves. Our goal, our purpose, we have to be very careful about. What are our true motives? He tells us very clearly, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. They will rust. They will get stolen. They will get taken away. Kids will fight over them when you die if you do pile them up. Or the lawyers. What good does it do? Now, does that mean we shouldn't work and provide? No, he who doesn't work shouldn't eat. First Thessalonians. But it's, we have to be careful what our motivations, our goals, and our purposes are. It's temporary. If we're living for the moment, if we're living for wealth now, if we're living for conveniences now, and that's our goal and our purpose, as it is with most Americans, God says it's wrong. It's not the right way to go. Don't be thinking that way. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Our con continual thought should be, how is my spiritual bank account? What things am I doing for my brothers, my sisters, to help, to give, to serve? Because that's what lays up treasure in heaven. Forgiving them their trespasses causes yours to be forgiven, and opens the way for blessing and treasure in heaven. And we need to be thinking that way. What is God's view of me in terms of my spiritual bank account? There's got to be something there to convince him that you ought to live forever in his kingdom. Character, the way we live, the way we treat each other, our willingness to give to and to forgive as well, and all those things are what cause a treasure, a value, to be placed with our name in the book of life. If we're in it selfishly, what reason would he have to preserve us forevermore as a selfish, 
pride, vain, egocentric human being. What value is there there? We need value in heaven. That's what we need. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How many times through the Bible does he talk about how he wants our heart? He's after our heart, for our wholeheartedness to him. That's what he's after. And where we place value, where we place what we treasure, is what indicates where our heart is. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light. In other words, we need to be focused. We need to keep our perspective right. We need to be focusing on serving, giving, helping, loving, forgiving, showing mercy. Those are the things we need to be. There's our focus. But so often it's easy to focus on other people's problems, their lacks, their faults, their sins, their offenses. Those things become easy. But is our focus on forgiveness and mercy and love, service? There's where we should focus. Even in our prayers. Our Father, not my Father. Yes, it needs to be a personal relationship. And I think there's a time when we have to pour out our heart to God about me because I have my problems. But let's be sure that we do everything in the context of us, not just me. Me doesn't get it. What is the bride of Christ supposed to do? Supposed to bring happiness, peace, joy, love, productivity, good relationships to the whole world. So we need to be practicing that today. If we practice it today and do it, then he'll say, man, I want that one there because I know they're going to help my family in the world tomorrow. They'll be there to serve, to give, to help, to encourage, to kick, whatever needs to be done. This is the way, walk in it. That one I want there to help me because i got a big job to get this whole world straightened out so that my will is done on earth as it is in heaven. I would love for every one of us here when Christ looks at us to say, man, I want those. I want every one of them. Every last one of them. Give me them all. Wouldn't that be neat? Wouldn't it be sad if we go through all that we go through and you say, well, okay, I'll take that one, that one, that one. Oh, <laughs> I don't want that to happen to any of us. We're here. Let's love each other. Let's help each other. Strengthen one another. Set an example for each other. We can't with our mouths straighten each other out all the time, can we? All it does is create more problems, generally. But by example, we can help each other a lot. That's what God treasures. But if your eye be evil... Your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? This world lives in darkness. Selfishness, me first, dog eat dog. No man can serve two masters. 
All right, he lays it out. You can't both seek the treasures of this world and the treasures of God. He says it doesn't work. You can't serve both those masters. That's why he says give up lands and homes and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and come and follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. Let's get God's things done, not our own. You can't serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man or money. You can't do it. You can't sit on, you can't straddle that fence. You've got to wholeheartedly seek God and let these other things fall into place. He'll, he'll talk about that just a little bit further along here. Therefore I say to you, take no thought, it should be anxious thought, take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, are you not much better than they? God has set up a system that takes care of the animals and the birds. He has set up a system here where we can grow foods, we can produce, and we can eat. Now, are we to take thought of those things? Yeah. There's not going to be breakfast unless you figure out what to make for breakfast. And there's not going to be anything to make for breakfast if you don't bring some food in the house. So those are things that need to be thought of. We need to plan, we need to organize, we need to work, we need to produce. There are scriptures that cover all those things. But it's worrying about it and being anxious about it rather than living in faith that if we do our part, God will take care of us. It's just a wrong approach to life if we worry and are anxious and fret over these things. We are to trust God that if we will do what he says, he will take care of us and our efforts will not be in vain. Yes, work, put forth effort, but put God first, and he says, I will take care of you. But you've got to believe that. You've got to trust him. Just wishing you trusted him is not enough. got to do it. Which of you, by taking thought, can add 18 inches to your height? Why take you thought for raiment, or anxious thought? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He had access to anything he wanted in terms of material or decoration of, of his body. But he still wasn't as pretty as a flower. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I've already addressed it as a faith issue, and here he plugs it in and says, yes, indeed, how we approach life is a faith, a trust issue. If you worry and are anxious and fret, over physical things, God says you have little faith. The relationship with him is not right. 
And he says he doesn't answer the prayers of those who do not trust him. He does not hear the prayers of those who do not obey. There's another test we can use. How much do I obey God? Because your faith is built through obedience. It is destroyed through disobedience and bad conscience is how it's destroyed. Faith comes by studying the Word of God and applying it because it is what sets us free from all the frustrations and the worries. Faith is built through studying God's Word and reading these things where he says, I will take care of you. And believing it, putting your care upon him because he cares for you. Now, how much of it can you just turn loose of and put on him and then not worry? Work, produce, plan, do, but don't worry. How much do human beings worry, fret, get all agitated and can't sleep because they're all worrying about their problems? There's an awful lot of time and energy lost doing that. You know what? People say, well, I'm just a worry wart. Well, there's cures for warts, and there's cures for worry. The cure is to believe the things we're reading here. Worry is not. Did you ever notice it's not fun? It's not a bit of fun to worry. In fact, it's downright nasty. So why do it? We worry because we don't trust God. It's what he says here in so many words. O you of little faith. Therefore take no anxious thought, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. See, they don't have a relationship with God, and they worry about those things. We have a relationship with God, and therefore we shouldn't worry, because he says, if you are productive and you're doing the things I tell you to do, I will take care of you. Seek you first. Put first. Make it your focus, the kingdom of God. How easy is it to get our eyes on everything we're doing and push God into the background? That comes so easy. Keep him first in your heart and mind and focus. And his righteousness. How are we going to be a part of the bride of Christ? <laughs> to be a part of his kingdom? By being clothed with white raiment of the righteousness of the saints, Revelation 19, when he returns. Now, if that's what it's going to require... That's what he's going to judge us by and whether or not we're entered into the wedding supper by whether we have the wedding garments on, they are the righteousness of saints. That's what he says right here. Seek him and his righteousness. All these other things will be taken care of. It's just very hard for us to do that. Excuse me. Take therefore no anxious thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. There's enough trouble in a day without you having to sit and worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> Just deal with the day. Obey God. Keep your focus on Him and let Him take care of tomorrow. All right, we're going to go quickly through chapter 7. <clears throat> 
opens it the same way he did right after the model prayer there on forgiveness. Condemn not, that you be not condemned. For with what condemnation or judgment you judge, you shall be judged condemned. And with what measure you mete it out, however you parcel out judgment and condemnation of others, it shall be measured to you again. Here again, it's not you and me, Lord. It is how you treat each other is exactly measured out and how you will be treated in God's judgment of you. If you want a barometer, if you want a tape measure, this is it. I will judge you exactly as you judge others. Are we ready for the judgment? We are now being judged daily. Judgment is now upon the house of spiritual Israel. And how we treat each other daily is how his daily judgment of us is toted up, measured or meted out. And it will ultimately come down to a final decision about whether you will be in the kingdom and how much reward you will receive in that kingdom. Both things. And why behold you the moat the watery stuff that can be wiped out, that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the log in your own eye. We can get all worried about somebody else's problems, and how can you see them when, we, when you have so many problems of your own? You hypocrite. Now, we don't want to be hypocrites, do we? First cast out your beam out of your own eye, then shall you see clearly to cast out the moat out of your brother's eye. I'll tell you what, if you really consider that seriously, I better be careful about judging or condemning anybody until I get some of the major problems I have, attitudes, approaches, words, taken care of. As long as we have those things, our own problems, we have no opportunity no justification for looking at anybody else's problems. You know what? If we would, right here, in our relationship with each other on this land, and some of you are visiting, I understand, or from other areas that are part of the group, but I'm just talking here as an audience, and we who, who live here where we are in glass houses and see each other regularly... <clears throat> If we could just solve our problems before we look at somebody else's problems, this would be a world of a different place, would it not? It is so easy to find fault with each other. But if we will get rid of our faults, and we all have them, we don't have time to look at anybody else's faults or judge what kind of person they are or how righteous they are, or how good they are. We have no right. He says here, you have no right. He says, if you do that, you're an absolute hypocrite. Verse 6, give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Be careful. You don't know whether somebody really is an enemy in disguise or whether they're pure of heart. You have to be careful what 
information you give where? Because they might turn and rend you and prove that they're a swine by the way that they treat you. So we have to be careful what we say, what we give out. Be sure, if you can, that somebody's sincere and wants the information for the right reasons, not just try to prove you wrong or turn around and make an enemy and laugh at you for what you believe. We have to be careful. You know, if wisdom or guidance or direction or advice is not wanted, it doesn't do you a bit of good to give it, because they'll despise it anyway. Are their motivations true, or are they there to learn about you so that they can put you down and rend you? Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. So we are to ask, we are to seek righteousness, God's will, God's favor, together. <clears throat> For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. In other words, you have to really go after righteousness and the things he's talking about here to be the bride of Christ. You just sort of sit there. How is that qualifying you? How is that helping you? How is that putting on the garments of righteousness and preparing the bride? No, you've got to seek, look, find. He says, seek it as you would silver and gold. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, being evil, <laughs> we are evil by nature. We are deceitful and desperately wicked. I don't care how much they try to tell us that we're wonderful, good. Look at the fruit of the world. Look at the fruit of mankind. Are we good? Or do we see war and fighting and strife and jealousies and envy and selfishness? If you then, being evil as you are, know how to give your good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, who is not evil, is what he's saying, give good things to them that ask him. If you're willing, as selfish as you are, to share good things with your children, how much more will God, who is not selfish, be willing to give to us? He wants to bless us. You know what the biggest problem is? We can't afford to be blessed. That's the biggest problem with us. It has been Israel's history and mankind's history from time immemorial that when God blesses, people depart from him. The minute he blesses, people usually forget God. He can't afford to bless us. He wants us to remember God. It's when we need something, when we have a want, when we have a hurt, is when we go to God. The minute he gives us the things we wanted and we don't have any needs, we begin to forget him. We pray when we got our tail in the crack, not when it's out of the crack. So God has to keep the pressure on. Why? Because we're such ungrateful, evil, unforgiving, judgmental, condemning people. 
And it's not just you and me in this room. It's mankind's whole history. Well, bring you out of Egypt, open the Red Sea for you, come on through. Where's the water? Where's the food? You brought us out here to die. That was your whole motivation and purpose all along. You just wanted to kill us. Why didn't you just let us stay in Egypt and make bricks? Let the Egyptians kill us. Why'd you have to do it? I could work myself into a bad attitude here. No, we limit ourselves, brethren. We truly limit ourselves because we can't handle blessing. So we've got to get over being selfish and get to the point we can handle blessing and still be loving toward God and loving toward each other and not become selfish. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is a summarization of the whole book of the law and the prophets, everything that went before. He's saying, this has been the rule all along. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat them like you would like to be treated. How do you want to be treated? Mercy, love, kindness, interest, want to be liked, want to be loved? We all do. We need those things. Well, then let's give them to each other as well. Sure is hard to bite back some of those thoughts and attitudes and words that come to our mind and our tongues, isn't it? Because we're not there yet. It's the whole law and prophets. If you're going to be a bride of Christ, <laughs> you've got to live up to this. There again, it's a very simple concept. It's just hard to live it. <clears throat> then he tells you it's going to be hard. Verse 13, enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in there. The broad, evil way is the easy way. It's the fun way. It's the way human nature is. It's the carnal way. It's giving in to whatever desires we have, no matter how much it hurts somebody else. Because I want to. I want to. Because narrow is the gate, or straight, or hard, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find that. There aren't many that are willing to walk an uphill, steep, narrow, ruddy road. But overcoming, growing, sacrificing, doing for, is a hard way to go. It's easy to be selfish and lazy and do your own thing. And not only is it easy to do, most Americans have been spoiled and trained that way. Do your own thing. Nobody will tell me what to do. I am a sovereign. I will do what I please. Devil take the hindmost. That's what we're trained to do in our society and culture. See why it's so evil? We think the American way is the godly way. Oh, give me a break. The American way is about as far from God as you can get. 
We're creating wars all over the world. Out of selfishness for oil and wealth, power, and other things. The American way is not God's way. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Be careful of those who might be leading you astray. Check what they say against the word of God. A true prophet will say the true things of God. A false prophet will have his own agenda doing his own thing. You shall know them by their fruits. Well, they say one thing to another. Here's a good example. Look at the American government. They say, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Change you can believe in. Change you can, oh my. Look what change we're getting. It's not a change for the good. If we had a wet diaper before, we sure got a worse one today. Based on change. You know them by their fruits. Say one thing and do another. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. If it's a good person doing what's right, then the fruits will be good. They'll be warm, loving, kind, gentle, helpful, forgiving, not condemnative. That's a good tree. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit because it doesn't think evil. And therefore, if you don't think evil, you don't do evil. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. If your thoughts are evil and selfish and proud and judgmental and condemnative, then you're not going to bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. <coughs> not everyone that says... Notice this. this. This is about the first resurrection. This is about the covenant of marriage. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just expressing a desire to be there is not enough. <laughs> but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. I don't want a bride that gives me lip service and says, I love you, honey, and won't do anything I say. He's telling us what to do here. And he's judging by how we react, how we handle it. Do we do it? Do we follow these conditions? Or we just think that's a wonderful, wonderful sermon that Jesus gave. And then go through life as if we had never heard it. He wants to be sure we don't get away with that. So he says, it doesn't do any good to say, Lord, Lord, unless you do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many, not a few, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name have cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? Haven't we been good? I deserve to be in your kingdom. I, I think I'm pretty good. All these other people over here, you know, they're not very good, but... Man, I've repented and I've overcome and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. This reminds me of Matthew 25. He reiterates it there. <laughs> then will I profess to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. If you didn't do it to each other, then you didn't do it to me.
And that is how he makes his judgment. He made it very plain there at the end of Matthew 25. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Well, he gives encouragement here. If you'll, just, if you'll do these things, I'm going to consider you wise. <coughs> the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that hears these sayings of mine and does them, or does them not, shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Spent a lot of time building something on a wrong foundation. We build our spiritual house on the foundation of selfishness, and yet it will fall. And all that work will create a great fall. But if we give our whole heart to God and to his people and those around us and treat them as we would wish to be treated, then that's wise. And that will stand. That's something worth saving. But anything we build on selfishness and pride and self-righteousness will fall. And it came to pass when Emmanuel had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Why? Why did it astonish them? For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. He laid it out. He said, this is the way it is, boys and girls. Well, it's just boys at that point. The multitude was there as uninvited guests. He was talking to his disciples here. This is the way it is. And he taught it firmly, straightforward, not sweetly, but he said, if you want to be my bride, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, here's the way it is. Authoritatively, firmly, that's just the way it is. That's the marriage covenant. Those are the terms and the conditions that he has laid out for us to be a part of the kingdom of God and the bride of Christ. So when it says in, Matthew, or in Revelation 19, the bride has prepared herself and she is wearing the holy garments of righteousness, it means that we have gone back and take these three, taken these three chapters to heart because the whole rest of the New Testament and the law and the prophets, he said, is all based on what we just read. This is the heart of the matter. Everything else you read, he says, backs up, strengthens, and is a part of just this little short dissertation in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is the standard by which he will judge whether or not you and I will be a part of the bride of Christ. So now that we've seen the terms laid out here in summary form, we can now consider the Feast of Trumpets, which is the resurrection of the bride. And God willing, we'll get to that next time. <clears throat>